Good morning. Our opening words this morning are from the poem America by Allen Ginsberg. I'm not actually going to read the entirety of the poem <laughs> because it's a lot. He had a lot to say. Um, I'm going to read kind of the first section, the first long stanza. Uh, and I encourage you to go and, and check it out and see the the fullness of what Ginsburg was thinking about. I am also going to um, uh, not bleep myself, but use some slightly edited words uh, here up at the beginning. This was written in Berkeley, January 17, 1956. America, I've given you all and now I'm nothing. America, $2.27, January 17, 1956. I can't stand my own mind. America, when will we end the human war? Go F yourself with your atom bomb. I don't feel good, don't bother me. I won't write my poem till I'm in my right mind. America, when will you be angelic? When will you take off your clothes? When will you look at yourself through the grave? When will you be worthy of your million Trotskyites? America, why are your libraries full of tears? America, when will you send your eggs to India? I'm sick of your insane demands. When can I go into the supermarket and buy what I need with my good looks? America, after all, it is you and I who are perfect, not the next world. Mm. Your machinery is too much for me. You made me want to be a saint. There must be some other way to settle this argument. Burroughs is in Tangiers. I don't think he'll come back. It's sinister. Are you being sinister, or is this some form of practical joke? I'm trying to come to the point. I refuse to give up my obsession. America, stop pushing. I know what I'm doing. America, the plum blossoms are falling. I haven't read the newspapers for months. Every day, somebody goes on trial for murder. America, I feel sentimental about the wobblies. America, I used to be a communist when I was a kid. I'm not sorry. I smoke marijuana every chance I get. I sit in my house for days on end and stare at the roses in the closet. When I go to Chinatown, I get drunk and never get laid. My mind is made up. There's going to be trouble. You should have seen me reading Marx. My psychoanalyst thinks I'm perfectly right. I won't say the Lord's Prayer. I have mystical visions and cosmic vibrations. America, I still haven't told you what you did to Uncle Max after he came over from Russia. I'm addressing you. Are you going to let your emotional life be run by Time Magazine? I'm obsessed by Time Magazine. I read it every week. Its cover stares at me every time I slink past the corner candy store. I read it in the basement of the Berkeley Public Library. It's always telling me about responsibility. Businessmen are serious. Movie producers are serious. Everybody's serious but me. It occurs to me that I am America. Will you be my refuge? My storm will you keep the embers warm when my fire's all but gone will you remember bring me sprigs of rosemary 
Be my sanctuary till I can carry on, carry on, carry on. This one knocked me to the ground. This one brought me to my knees. I should have seen it coming, but it surprised me. Will you be my refuge, my haven from the storm? Will you keep the embers warm when my fire's all but gone? Will you remember, bring me sprigs of rosemary, be my sanctuary till I can carry on, carry on, carry on. In a state of true believers, on streets called us and them, it's gonna take some time till the world feels safe again. Will you be my refuge, my haven from the storm? Will you keep the embers warm when my fire's all but gone? Will you remember? Bring me sprigs of rosemary, be my sanctuary, till I can carry on, carry on, carry on. can rest here in Brown Chapel or with a circle of friends, a quiet grove of trees or between two bookends. Will you be my refuge, my haven from the storm? Will you keep the embers warm when my fire's all but gone? Will you be my refuge? Bring me sprigs of rosemary, be my sanctuary till I can carry on, carry on. Carry on, carry on. Good morning. 
Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Susan Runner, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Only, even if you're on Facebook, please check in with us. Visitors and guests, we hope you got a name tag, a blue name tag, so that we will know who you are, and we can talk with you about what you're looking for in a community. We love talking about this community. We talk a lot. So uh, <laughs> we, we hope you'll join us after the platform for coffee and cookies in the uh, lobby and social hall. Please also consider sharing your email on the gold sheet that's in your program. And uh, you can drop that in the collection basket in the, on the way during the platform service. I want to remind you to silence all of your electronic devices so that we can be totally present this morning. However, if you'd like to, please check in on social media. I'd like to invite Joe Klein to read our statement of purpose. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. I forgot to mention, I always screw something up, but Joe is a member of our uh, pastoral care associates who help build trust through care in our community relations committee and help, uh, and it's a very important school. Let's read our statement of purpose. May we kindle within us the warmth of invitation, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Each week, we ring a chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I am particularly mindful of our siblings in the United Methodist Church, who are this weekend meeting to decide whether the church will offer full inclusion of LBTQ people, thinking of all those in the United Methodist family who are waiting to find out whether they and their full selves and their loves are welcome. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and love.
I invite you now into a time of meditation. Settle into your seat, sit with dignity, close your eyes if you would like, or focus on the floor in front of you, and take a deep breath. This morning, I want to invite you, as you continue to breathe, to bring your awareness to the people around you. Notice with your body awareness how close they are sitting to you. Notice how it feels to be near people in this way. Is it comfortable? Uncomfortable. Listen for the sound of their breath. Notice how that feels, to be aware of another person's breath, to know all of us are sharing the same airspace. As you continue to breathe, do so keeping in your awareness those around you. Notice how unusual it is to be silent with a group of people for an extended period of time. Not an awkward silence, but a companionable silence, an intentional silence. Breathe. Notice breath.
a beautiful piece, that Rilke. I'm not familiar with that poem, and it just, mm, thank you, Chorus. You know, um, <clears throat> I have heard a lot of platforms and sermons in my day, uh, having been required to study them in school, and of course having been part of a congregation really since about fourth grade, and um, being one of those kids too that uh, skipped out on teen groups so I could go on Sunday to <laughs> service. That was that was me, guys. That was me. Um, <laughs> and um, and so I've heard, uh, you know, probably hundreds, right? Um, and most of them don't really stick with me that long. I think this is good. It gives me a sense of humility about my own work. <laughs> I don't really expect that you're going to remember this maybe a couple of weeks from now, so that's good. That's, you know, it's a nice balance to ego. But there's one that I remember, several really, but one in particular I'm thinking of today that stands out, um, and I probably heard it about, 13 or 14 years ago, it was quite some time ago. It's perhaps it was because it was the first one that I remember hearing from my internship supervisor when I did my, um, my clergy internship at River Road Unitarian Universalist Congregation over in Bethesda. Um, and I think this was the first uh, sermon that the supervisor there, the senior minister there, um, Gave, and he was really, you know, one of my first teachers about how to speak. So, of course, I was paying attention and listening and, and taking notes. I remember, in fact, his manuscripts, he spoke, spoke from a manuscript. Every word was on the page. And um, they would have bold and underlining, I mean, practically emojis in them, you know, um, to help make sure that his delivery really matched what it was that he wanted to say in spirit. He's a very um, uh, sort of, yeah. This. He's this. I don't know the word for this, but he's this as a preacher. Or perhaps I remember it because it spoke to something that I felt was important. <laughs> this particular sermon was about the social compact, the social contract in America. It was about kind of the history of taxes in America and the social safety net. This particular minister was speaking himself from a, a place of uh, financial privilege. And he was essentially saying, at least the way I remember it, that's another good humility piece. Who knows what he was really trying to say or actually physically said in that moment. I only remember what I took away, and I know that you'll all take away something that may or may not be related to my words on any given Sunday. What I remember him saying, though, essentially was, hey, I have money, tax me, <laughs> tax me. It's appropriate for the money that I have to be part of caring for people in America who don't have as much money. That's the deal that we made in this country since Social Security benefits were introduced in 1934. The deal that we've been building on since then with school lunch in 1946 and disability insurance in 1956, SSDI, Medicare and Medicaid in 1965, and the earned income tax credit for working families in 1975. That's what I remember from this sermon, and in fact, it matched my understanding of what I thought it was we were doing in America what we were doing together in this country, that we were constantly expanding the social safety net. 
the social contract that we had with each other. You know, when I was researching for this platform, I, um, I actually found a really cool timeline online um, through, um, I think it's at TikTokie. Is that a thing? TikTokie.net. I'm looking at some of my wonk people. No, no, they're shaking their heads like, no, it's not a thing. So it's not on that. Don't go to that <laughs> website. We don't even know what that website is. Um, Anyway, I found some timeline on a website that talked about sort of when different, um, essentially, social safety net benefits were introduced in America. And you can see the very beginning were for, like, widows, um, uh, the Widows Pension Act, I think, for widows of service members uh, back in the early 1900s. And then we kind of keep going um, through. There's uh, quite a space in the 80s and 90s where we didn't seem to get a whole lot of new stuff. Um, but then, you know, it, it has continued. and and. So that's what I kind of thought we were doing in America, um, creating ways to support people who needed extra help. Those of us who were able to offer some of that help did so often through our taxes, and those taxes then um, were able to support folks. And so I remember hearing that sermon um, that day and thinking, yes, I will pay taxes for that too when I have income. I was an intern, so there were, that wasn't really relevant to me in that moment, but and yes, that is America's promise. Oh, the beautiful, innocent days of 2005. <laughs> now, we have actually had some great social contract moments since 2005, most notably the Affordable Care Act. I actually don't think I realized what it would mean for that act to be passed um, until it happened. And members of this congregation started telling me about being able to go, just to go to a doctor for the first time in years, about what it meant for them to have health insurance after not having had it for so long. And then, of course, as it was threatened, coming to me to tell me about how they were hoping to fit in that one appointment or that particular procedure before they lost their ability to receive health care before they lost their ability to be healthy, their right to, as I've heard somebody once wrote, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This platform is called, Is America Trustworthy? Kind of feels like a rhetorical question these days. And of course, for many in America, the answer has simply always been no, <laughs> no. We talk a lot here at Wes about sort of the dual reality. Well, I, I should really, I talk a lot here <laughs> at Wes. You forbear and listen about the dual reality of America's founding. I'm just really um, intrigued by this concept, right? The beautiful dream that was within its Western historical context, exciting and new and inspiring and the reality of slavery as the economic basis for that dream, the dehumanization of people woven right into the words of liberty. You may have, like me, visited the African American um, History Museum on the Mall. If you haven't, I highly recommend actually several visits. I've gone twice. I'm still in the 1700s. I do hope to get through that at some point. There's a statue um, of Thomas Jefferson at the museum, looking like most statues of Thomas Jefferson, statesmanlike and proud. It's in bronze or something beautiful. 
and he stands in front of a stack of what look kind of like bricks, sort of that size and shape, each one representing, often with a name, a person that he held enslaved. A big stack, much taller than the statue. This is the author, you recall, of the beautiful and world-changing phrase, all men are created equal. <coughs> is America trustworthy? I'm not going to bother in this platform going through the history of all the ways that America has proven so deeply untrustworthy to its own citizens and residents, to its most vulnerable inhabitants, to those seeking asylum on our shores. I'm not going to bother with the history because the present is concerning enough. <laughs> I went to a class recently um, on the rise of white nationalism uh, with Sharon Welch. Sharon Welch um, is a humanist ethicist and a professor at Meadville Lombard Theological School, which is one of the Unitarian Universalist seminaries, although I actually took this class, was offered by the American Humanist Association uh, here in DC, and it was uh, offered for humanists who were uh, leading organizations or institutions, a kind of a master class in um, fighting white nationalism. Dr. Welch took us from the founding of the country um, through American history, and then she really concentrated on the rise of white nationalism now. Her take is that the recent presidential election is primarily the result of that rising, or perhaps um, better said, kind of a resurgence of white nationalism in this country. And I want to have a side note that you can read about 45 long-form articles about what happened with the last presidential election, right? So I'm just sharing Dr. Welch's approach um, from the research that she's looked at and obviously her, her viewpoint and the sort of focus of the class. It was um, not a super uplifting class. Uh, in fact, part of what we talked about in this class was to hold hope, <laughs> given the history in America, the present, the potential future, given the ability of humans to consistently seek power over rather than power with, and in particular, the impulse of white America through history to exercise power over um, again and again in sort of explicit ways and sneaky ways, all the ways that we see systemic racism. So we talked a lot, this group of um, humanists gathered together about whether it made any sense to think about hope, whether that was even a useful concept uh, in this case, in this um, scenario we found ourselves in. And, and what Dr. Welch encouraged us, encouraged us to do was to set aside sort of hope and hopelessness as though those were the choices, right? Um, and instead to ground ourselves in gratitude for the world around us, um, the world that we experience, our natural world, our relationships with each other, our ancestors, and out of that gratitude to find an impulse toward commitment and action. She, um, she really found some of the grounding for gratitude, right, in the work of Robin Wall Kimmerer, um, who, um, who writes based on indigenous environmental philosophy, uh, um, out of which she comes personally and which she studies, uh, and the idea that we are deeply connected to the earth, that it depends on us and we depend on it, and we are in a reciprocal relationship 
with the world around us and therefore are called to gratitude and to um, work ahead. And, and Dr. Welch did give us some reasons for um, gratitude and possibility and invited us to think about sort of the commitment and action that people were taking. So Kimmerer, um, the, the author I just spoke about, has created what she calls a covenant of reciprocity, right, out of that indigenous environmental philosophy, a covenant of reciprocity, which she's inviting people to think about what does that mean for us, how does that mean we show up with each other. And then Dr. Welch talked about a declaration of interdependence, which you can find online. It's actually, you can find some beautiful versions of it. It looks all fancy and scrolly, the declaration of interdependence dependence, not independence, but again, reciprocity, interdependence. We depend on each other. And she pointed out a whole, there's a, um, a concept called B Corps, which is a series of corporations who have signed on to the Declaration of Interdependence. And that means that they um, focus on people and environment and um, then profits. Um, and they have a whole series of tests they have to take and reports that they have to make. You can find that information. So she was trying to talk to us about all of the little ways people were fighting back against the tearing apart of society, the power over that has been so much part of our history and present. I find it, when I think about whether America is trustworthy, I find it helpful to think, too, about all the ways that we do trust each other thought about this this morning as I got in a lift, some person I'd never met before picked me up at my door and I blithely got in his car <laughs> and um, off we went and um, down the road and I trusted that he was going to drive me responsibly and that somebody had checked on his driving record. I hadn't, but I guess Lyft had. And that as we went down the road that all the other cars were going to drive pretty much according to the traffic laws that we've set in place, a huge amount of trust in hundreds of people just getting from my house to here this morning. Dr. Welch talked as well about the concept of hive mind. I was familiar with hive mind mostly from Facebook when people need recommendations and they say, okay, hive mind, what's the best hairdresser in Washington, DC, right? Which is really useful. She had a deeper, <laughs> who knew, an ethicist, you know, um, a deeper understanding of hive mind that she invited us into, which was the idea of how much of our knowledge we don't actually hold, the knowledge that we depend on all the time. Her example was flying in an airplane. She pointed out that no single person knows how to build a plane has the capacity to build a plane, also knows how to fly the plane, also knows how to manage the air traffic control patterns so that the plane doesn't crash into other planes, right? Also knows how to get people safely on and off the plane. You know, all of the pieces that go into a safe air flight. Nobody holds all of that knowledge. We are each one of us along the way trusting that somebody else did it right and adding our knowledge to the hive mind that goes into that flight. And then those of us who know actually none of those pieces about a plane, nor how it works, 
you know, happily get into this tube that shoots through the sky and think, well, I hope the hive mind works. <laughs> I hope the trust that I've placed in all these people over history, really, and time and this moment is borne out and I get to the end of my destination correctly. It occurs to me that the title of this platform, Is America Trustworthy?, may be looking at it all wrong. That perhaps the question really is, what can we do to make America trustworthy? To add to the experience of trust, warranted trust, in this country that is, after all, ours. Whether we experience a sense of power and agency in this country or not, we are fundamentally both the recipients of and the creators of whatever exists here. You might remember back in early January, I gave a platform around possibilities. Actually, you probably don't remember. I started this whole platform saying you probably don't. But anyway, I did. It was really good if you didn't. <laughs> Especially if you didn't hear it, it was really good. <laughs> I referenced in that platform <laughs> that there were multiple ways to be involved in activism, in world building. It was from an article by Deepa Iyer on uh, medium.com, which I still recommend. It's a really short article. She talked about different people having different roles in work in our world. Uh, Frontline responders, healers, community storytellers and artists, natural bridge builders, proud disruptors and visionaries. And when I think about the task of creating trust in our society, building the trustworthiness of America, that work comes back to me. The idea that each one of us may have a different role to play, a different piece in building that in this country. Shortly before the white nationalism conference, I went to a conference on polarization. Both of them were against those things, right? So against white nationalism and against polarization. Or really sort of handling polarization. It was about polarization in congregations and community. And, um, and, you know, and I went in part because we've got folks that, you know, think a variety of different things here, and I wanted to learn a little bit more about how to support relationship among people that think different things. I will say some of the clergy that were there had congregations where the different things people thought were, like, really, really different. It made me feel as though I had, like, little baby polarization here, right? <laughs> Not, ooh, they, they had some work. <clears throat> And so the conference was about really just that question, how to build relationship among people who felt polarized from each other. So of course there are applications well beyond congregations to the country at large. And I think it's those natural bridge builders, you know, that particular role that really has a space to play here in the polarization, a way to build trust across difference. The conference talked about rather than going directly at, you know, here's my opinion and here's why it should be yours, which in my experience has a success rate of 0%, it invited people to ask questions about how you got to your opinion. When did you first start thinking about this issue? Who taught you about it? Tell me the story of that. Who are your models of thinking? Sort of process questions, how questions, to build relationship around the difference 
which then sneakily, right, builds capacity to ultimately be able to talk about the difference in a way where you've already built a little bit of trust. There was more in there, and there's, of course, a huge amount to be said about <coughs> reducing polarization, speaking across difference to build trust. I think especially if you are one of those natural bridge builders, there is a core role for that right now in our country. The conference on um, fighting white nationalism, though, had some really interesting material that's not exactly in tension with the polarization work, but maybe just held in kind of creative mm, tension interest difference, was around bullying <coughs> and the research on bullying in schools, which um, Dr. Welch was saying translates as well to bullying in communities or bullying in uh, workplaces or bullying in America, right, which ultimately is often what white nationalism looks like, bullying. The research showed that um, actually trying to get the bully to change their opinion, to change how they interacted in the situation is almost never effective. They're not actually, you're not going to be able in a moment of bullying to teach empathy to the bully. You shouldn't, you shouldn't really bother, actually, is what the research shows. Instead, what you need to do is build up the courage of the bystanders in that situation to be able to intervene. And that made so much sense to me. Actually, it, it, it's connected to, to how I've heard it talked about in, in our Sunday school here years and years ago, the idea of the power of the bystander. And so what this research says is what we need to do in schools, in our country, is build up our courage to say when we see something not right. We don't necessarily need only to do this polarization work in the hope of bringing over folks who might be heading toward white nationalism, right? We need to build up the courage of those of us who, you know, think white nationalism sounds pretty bad, but aren't necessarily actively working against it yet. Building up our courage. The reading list for this white nationalism conference was really super long, and I'm, <clears throat> I'm not going to lie, I read almost zero of the books. But the one I did read um, was because it was the smallest, <laughs> uh, and it's called On Tyranny. It's a little tiny book, actually, with like 20 core points, and each one has, you know, four pages. So I, I, that's, I could manage it. Um, and, and I read it in part because it's really about the loss of trust in a society. It, it's an alarming book. I was really glad that I read it after the 2018 elections had happened. Um, the book was written before those elections, and it actually theorizes that they might not happen, that we might have had our final free election in America. So I was personally pleased that it was after those elections, and I was able to say, oh, good, you were wrong. <laughs> the the book lists 20 ways to fight tyranny based on the historical experiences of countries that ultimately were indeed taken by tyrants, by tyranny, mostly focused on the Nazi regime, regime although looking at other regimes as well um, through history. And, and some of them are things like, um, you know, investing in a free press, right, you know, paying for your newspaper subscription so that journalism is um, 
supported and can continue. Investing in institutions, anything, and they sort of say like it doesn't even matter. Pick an institution, uh, the YMCA, you know, um, uh, uh, any civic institution, a, a congregation. I would argue any institution at all. Um, don't assume that it's going to serve. That was a wonderful one, right? If you are in a field with professional ethics, make sure that the standards are held. Uh, investigate claims that you hear, you know, um, research um, what you hear. My favorite, though, was smile and talk to people. <laughs> it seemed so simple. Smile and talk to people. And yet the framing in this book really showed how important that simple idea is for building trust in a society where trust is being eroded nationally um, and in the highest levels. It talked about the importance of letting people know that you see them, particularly across difference and particularly for folks who are most vulnerable in um, under tyranny, but with anyone at all, the importance of the little trust building that happens when you say hello at the bus stop, or you stay connected to your neighbor, or you go to a PTA meeting, the smiles and hellos that build a web of person-to-person -person connections, which history shows us are among the most powerful when fighting tyranny. If we can remember our connections to our neighbors, person to person, we are more likely to try to save them if they're taken from their homes, right? Smile and say hello. These seemingly low-impact ways to bolster a sense of shared community that, in fact, are the cornerstones of trust in our society, in any society, and particularly in one that is in some danger of trust being lost completely. At the mid-year retreat recently, Several of the participants asked whether platforms could end with takeaways, with charges. Like, what am I supposed to do with this now? And I think this is such a perfect one for that, right? America may be going down the drain of a tyrannical regime. What am I supposed to do about that? <laughs> and so I will charge you with smiling and talking to people regularly. Pretend you're really in the South, right? <laughs> make eye contact, speak, build relationships, make sure you know your neighbors. I'm serious, right? Make sure you know the people that wait at the bus stop with you every day. Just say hello. And then there's another, I think, which takes more time but is also important. Some of you know we're part of the Washington Interfaith Network. In fact, there are Share the Plate this month. But we've been part of that group for nine, ten years here at the Ethical Society. It's an organization of congregations and neighborhood associations in D.C. 
And they're um, sponsoring two campaigns right now. One is um, working with the mayor and the budgeting process in D.C. to ensure funding for legal aid for immigrants in the District of Columbia. So um, America does not guarantee or offer any legal aid for immigrants who are in um, a, a process with ICE or asylum seekers. Um, it's all, uh, you know, either pro bono or all of their life savings, right? And so this would create a fund in D.C. that would support the legal needs of immigrants. That's one way that you can be involved. And the other way, which I think is even more connected to the idea of building trust, is a campaign to get people from all the wards of the city, right? We're here in Ward 4, out into Ward 7 and 8, east of the river. So many of us who live not east of the river haven't even been to that part of the city. And so Wynn is offering bus tours to start in March. We're looking at pulling a group of West folks together to go with each other and in fact to partner with people at Shepherd Park Christian Church, our neighbors here in Shepherd, uh, I'm sorry, at Northminster Presbyterian, our neighbors here in Shepherd Park, so we could carpool together. So you have two opportunities to build trust with people you wouldn't otherwise be connected with. You can drive in the car with people from Northminster over to the pickup site where the bus will take you and then on the bus you can talk to other people. Isn't that exciting? and learn about what's going on in seven and eight where huge amounts of development are coming into the city and neighbors either will be able, and by neighbors, I mean like us, okay, right? Neighbors, the big sense of neighbors will either be able to organize and bring people um, into the forefront of that development so that it remains a place for all the folks in that neighborhood or, um, or the development will just go the way big business wants it to. So that's, those are my charges for you today. That's what I want to invite you to take away. To be part of that work with the Washington Interfaith Network and to smile and talk to people and to realize that those things are the building blocks of America's trust.
continue with community sharing even though our children are here and as they're entering. Uh, we'd like to hear your voices on how you would like to potentially build trust. Please raise your hand and say your name into the microphone.